That was a great song. I really liked it. I have never heard it before, Ron. And you said it was just a few years ago, but I noticed the date was 1988. <laughs> so what that says to me, my brother, is you're getting old. <laughs> it was a good song. I liked it. On May the 5th, 1868, General John Logan, commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a volunteer veterans organization made up of Union, former Union soldiers, John Logan, General John Logan, issued General Order Number 11 on May 5th, 1868. General Order Number 11 proclaimed May 30th of that year as Decoration Day. Decoration Day. The purpose of Decoration Day was that these retired Union soldiers would gather on May 30th of that year at Arlington National Cemetery and they would decorate the graves of dead Union and Confederate soldiers with flowers. Thus began the practice of what we know as Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a day when we remember the dead who have fought for this country. Over time, this practice was enlarged, actually following World War I. They began decorating the graves of soldiers who had died in all of the conflicts that this nation has been involved in. By that time, the practice of Decoration Day, then known as Memorial Day, had spread throughout the country, most states participating on this day of May 30th. In 1971, by act of Congress, Memorial Day was moved from the 30th of May to the last Monday in the month of May in order to create a three-day federal holiday. In hindsight, I think that probably wasn't the best move because what I think it did is it turned it into a holiday in which we have picnics and barbecues. Well, there's nothing wrong with those, but we have lost a little bit of the original purpose of Memorial Day, which is to remember those who have given the last full measure of devotion in service for this country. Since its inception in 1775, according to the statistics that I was able to locate, more than 1.3 million men have given their lives in support of the United States of America. American blood has been spilled in every corner of this world. And we are the heirs today of those who have given that last full measure of devotion. Beloved, war is a hard, cold reality of life. We live in a broken world, a, a world corrupted by sin. The propensity for evil lies deep in the heart of every single one of us. Given sufficient provocation, every single one of us is capable 
of the most despicable acts of violence and barbarity. This is who we really are. This is why we need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us and to transform us, to change our nature from who we are to who we will ultimately become when Christ returns. This world has known nothing but war. There is war constantly on this planet, someplace or another. Occasionally it has broken out into major conflicts in which many, many hundreds of thousands, yea, millions of lives have been taken. This is the state of human affairs. God in His goodness and His mercy and His providence has created human government for the purpose of restraining the wickedness of the human heart. Government is deeply flawed, broken in many cases, and yet it remains as God's good gift to us. Without human government to restrict the violent passions of the human heart, this race would extinguish itself. We would annihilate one another. As in those days leading up to the worldwide flood, violence prevailed on this planet to the point where God washed it clean. He scoured the earth with a global flood, destroying every man, woman, and child, save Noah and his family. This is the state of the human heart and thus the need for human government. It'll always remain flawed. It will always remain broken because it is comprised of flawed and broken people. It will never live up to its highest ideal. We will never achieve the peace that we all long for on this planet until Jesus Christ himself returns and establishes his great millennial kingdom, a kingdom of peace and prosperity that will extend across this planet and war will be put to an end. The swords will not be beat into plowshares until Christ himself returns. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Deliver us from the evil, both within and without. But until Christ returns, beloved, human government is his good gift to us. And the transformed mind brought about by the gospel helps us to recognize that in the midst of all of its flaws, all of its problems, all of its shortcomings, that indeed human government is God's good gift to us. And for that, we are to be most thankful and most appreciative. By the good providence of God, you and I live in this country. We could have easily been born anywhere else on this planet. It is only His providence that has given us the ability to live here in this day and age. And although there are many, many, many problems in the United States, it is still a wonderful place to live. And for that, we are to be profoundly grateful. We are to be grateful as well for those men, and it is primarily men, who have died 
over the last couple hundred years in order to ensure the freedom that you and I enjoy here today. We are to be grateful for the last full measure of devotion. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, page 1137, if you're using a pew Bible. As Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul calls on us to be the very best citizens possible. Our interaction with the governmental authorities that God has placed over us reveals the depth of our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an outworking of the gospel. It is a product of the transformed mind and heart. It is an expression, that is, how we interact with the government is an expression of the righteousness of God. It is very much a part of the gospel, at least in terms of its implications. These are not tangential matters. These are not things of which we can just have political dispute and discussion, and you want to do it your way, and you want to do it your way, and it all is fine. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is is closely linking our attitudes towards the governmental authorities in our lives to the work of the Spirit of God within us. And he's saying that how we interact is a direct outworking of what the Spirit of God has done in. It's working out what He has worked in, if you want to say it that way. This is no small matter. This is no small matter. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. As you know, I'm calling this series in Romans 13, a manifesto for Christian citizenship. A manifesto is a statement, a document of first principles. And there are three of them in this chapter, I believe. Three first principles that a manifesto of Christian citizenship. That is, that the gospel produces in us these first principles that are, by, are to be embodied in our lives, in our, in our thinking, and in our speech, and in our interaction as a citizen of this great land and any land in which a Christian might find themselves. These are universal principles. There are three of them. They're on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. There is an outline there for you. The three first principles of a manifesto for Christian citizenship, they are simply this. We are to value our government. We are to value our government. Verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13. Second first principle is we are to love our neighbor. We are to love our neighbor. Verses 8 through 10. The third principle on which Christian citizenship is built is we are to restrain our flesh. We are to restrain our passions, our flesh our desire to to satisfy ourselves for the sake of our neighbors. For the sake of our neighbors. We live in a community. We live in a society. How we behave, how we think, affects other people. 
And so one whose thinking has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the understanding that we are sinners, that we have no claim on the mercy of God at all, that our just deserts are the lake of fire eternally called hell, and that it is only by the mercy of God in Christ that God has laid upon Him our iniquity that we might carry His righteousness as a robe, as a cloak that surrounds us and delivers us from the just wrath of God. That is by faith we come to see this truth and embrace it. And that it is not merely a legal fiction, it is a transformation that occurs as we continue to believe and preach that truth to ourselves. It changes our thinking, it changes our attitudes, it changes our desires, and it ultimately changes our behavior. And it brings about Christian citizenship. Listen to what the Apostle says. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to be awakened from sleep, for salvation, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, 
Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is the manifesto of Christian citizenship. This is the place to go to understand how God expects us to live as followers of Christ in a broken and fallen world. We've been looking for the last couple of weeks and will continue for several more at this first of the principles to value our government, verses 1 through 7. And so we are continuing to examine Paul's command contained here in verse 1 so that we might submit to our leadership and might begin to take our civic responsibilities seriously. Beloved, we are to be the best citizens this country can conceive of. When they think of us, they should be overjoyed that we are part of this nation. We are to be here for the good of the nation, for the good of our neighbors, not to their hindrance. Look at verse 1. Let's review for a moment. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Paul here reaches back, dips back into the Old Testament. We looked at this last week. All the way back to Genesis chapter 9. To the very establishment of government in those days following the great flood. And he establishes it here as a universal requirement for all mankind. Not just for the followers of the God of Israel, but for all of humanity. Verse 1, let every person, he says, be in subjection under the authority of those that God has placed over us. It is a universal requirement of all mankind. Anarchy is the exact opposite of what God would have for the human race. And the spirit of anarchy is to have no place in the heart of a follower of God. Why are we to be in subjection, Paul? Verse 1 again, he gives us two reasons. The first is that God himself is the source of all authority. You see it? For there is no authority except from God, verse 1. Authority doesn't come from within the human race itself. Authority lies only in the God of heaven and earth. He alone is sovereign. He alone is omnipotent. He alone is worthy to rule. And yet he has delegated a measure of rule and authority to the human race in the form of government. It is a stewardship. It lies not within the government itself. It is not we the people, noble as that thought might be. It is God Himself who is the source of all governing authority. And it is God Himself who stands behind the various forms of government throughout human history. Again, look at verse 1. And those which exist, notice it, are established by God. God is the one who raises kings and sets them aside again. Now, God works through human means. We understand that. 
In this country, we have the privilege of elections, and we have an election coming very shortly. And it's, it's important that we get involved and we understand the issues and that we vote our conscience in these things. This is a privilege. This is a right. This is a responsibility that has been delegated to us. But understand something in all of this, that it is God that stands behind it all. And no man or woman rises to the office of authority unless God elevates them there. And when God is done with them, He will remove them again. Whether they be a good and righteous king or whether they be a wicked and oppressive ruler, it is God Himself who stands behind it all. And it lies in the mystery of His providence to what, into which He does not permit us to peer. This twin reality of God sovereignly behind the rulers of this world and the human responsibility will never be resolved this side of the grave. Personal opinion, it probably won't be resolved on the other side of the grave either. Or I think it is too lofty for us. Too lofty. God is the source of all authority. God is the one who puts someone on the throne. And God is the one who removes them again. God will determine the next governor of the state of California. Let's just make it really, really practical. But that does not relieve us of the obligation to vote. Because of these deep and profound and mysterious theological truths here in verse 1, Paul draws a conclusion, verse 2, and, and that's where I want to begin this morning in earnest. Therefore, do you see it? Verse 2. Therefore, he's drawing a conclusion from that which has gone before. From these bedrock principles, therefore, there is a principle we must understand. And the principle is this. Very simply, earthly rebellion is cosmic treason. Now, I know those are strong words. But earthly rebellion is cosmic treason. It is to rebel against the God who stands behind the authorities that lie over us. And there's no evading it. Verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Very simply, what Paul is saying is, to oppose a God-ordained authority is to set yourself against God your, Himself. It is to shake your fist in the face of the Almighty. It is to imbibe the spirit of anarchy, the spirit of the Antichrist. It is to invite upon yourself sure condemnation. Those who have opposed, look at it again, verse 2, will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, there's some difference of opinion here among commentators, whether this is a reference to final eschatological condemnation, that is, the, the judgment at the great white throne, and, and there may be some of that there, but I suspect it's more than just condemnation someday, future, final, eternal punishment. I, I suspect that there's temporal condemnation involved here as well. I see it in context. Down to verse 4, the end of the verse. The government is an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. 
Probably there is a final spiritual judgment involved here and condemnation and punishment, but I suspect there's also the temporal factors. That is that if you set yourself against the God-ordained authorities over you, it will come back on you. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Beloved, there's no way around this. Those who are in government over us are to be obeyed. They are to be, they are to be obeyed in their sphere of authority. In their sphere of authority. It's also important, by the way, to notice that Paul does not take up the issue of how they got there. How did the governmental authorities arrive in the position in which they are? That is of no interest to the writers of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul could care less whether the Caesar that reigns over them was appointed by the imperial senate or whether he came to power in a military coup or whether it happened in a popular vote. It is a non-issue to him. The reality of the matter is that he is there because God has placed him there. And he has placed him there, as we'll see next time, verses 3 and 4, for our good. We are to submit They are to be obeyed. They are to be obeyed. Now, lest I continue to unnerve a few, let me add some caveats here. I've spoken very strongly these last couple of weeks, and I've done so intentionally. I have not dealt with the exceptions. And the reason I haven't dealt with the exceptions, I will beginning today, the reason I haven't dealt with the exceptions is because of what I said to you a month or two ago. It is the outworking of the rebellion of our own hearts that when we hear a command, we immediately flick to the exception. We seek to avoid it by thinking of all the reasons why it doesn't apply to us. Beloved, that's not the right approach. The right approach is to let the weight of it fall on you. Feel it. Understand it. Embrace it. Love it. Pursue it. And then when an exception arises, that can be dealt with. But do not evade the commandments of God by immediately trying to think about some situation in which they probably don't apply. It's the wrong approach. It's the wrong approach. Paul is not prohibiting, listen to me, he is not prohibiting disagreement with governmental policies or decisions. He is not prohibiting that. Within the cultural situation of the day and in whatever situations Christians find themselves, and whatever is culturally relevant and available to them, we are permitted and indeed I would say encouraged to disagree. We are to be thinking people. That's not the point. Legitimate political disagreement is available to us. It's fine. It's, it's good. It's healthy. It's, it's okay. What he's prohibiting here is the spirit of anarchy. The refusal to submit. The refusal to obey. Even laws that we profoundly disagree with. 
or think are foolish. We do not have the right for selective obedience. This is not Israel of the judges. When there was no king in Israel and each man did what? What was right in his own eyes. So let me press it home a little. Speed limit laws. Not speed limit suggestions. Speed limit laws. You know, the white signs that are posted on every road in this nation. Oh, pastor, but if you go 65, you know, people are going to be passing you and you got to keep up with the flow of traffic and on and on. Baloney. The law is to be obeyed. Let the lawbreakers keep up with the flow of traffic. It's to be obeyed. We may not agree with it. We may think it's silly. We may think it's unnecessary. We might have many, many reasons why we believe that this law applies to other people but not to us. But every single one of those reasons is invalid. Invalid. We'll sharpen it a little more. To break the speed limit laws of this nation is to sin against God. It is to set ourselves in opposition to our Creator. Beloved, Jesus Christ died to take the guilt for that kind of rebellious heart. And I would suggest that there are very few people in here, myself included, who have not participated in this kind of rebellious activity on more than one occasion. That doesn't normalize it. That doesn't make it okay. It's wrong. It's evil. Talking on cell phones while you're driving is against the law. Did you know that? You might think it's a stupid law, but it is the law. And we must obey it. We must obey it. If we have been transformed in our thinking and are being transformed in our thinking by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must obey it. It's not optional. As far as I know, there's no law against texting yet. There should be, personal opinion. I too believe I have the Spirit. Building codes and building permits. Another one of those aggravating laws, right? We're called upon to obey them. Not to evade them, but to obey them. How about this one? Mandatory health care insurance. That ought to inflame a few people. Beloved, it is the law of the land. I don't like it. Let's tell you that right up front. I don't like it. I have very strong political, economic reasons why I don't like it. But it doesn't matter. It is the law of the land. And until and unless it is overturned, it is God's ordained authorities over us who have passed such a law, and we must submit. We must. 
Yeah, but it goes against capitalism and everything we believe in. Capitalism is not the divine ordination of God. He has not ordained a capitalistic world. I happen to think it's the best economic system in a broken, fallen world. You understand the difference? And I know we hold these things deeply to our hearts. We're passionate about these things. I wish we were as passionate about the gospel as we are about some of these things. Prohibition of public prayer before government-sponsored events is the law of the land. We as followers of Jesus Christ are called to submit to that law. Our government has chosen not to establish public prayer prior to a governmental event, then, beloved, that's the law. And we're called on to submit to it. Are there any limits? Question. Are there any limits to the requirement to submit to the governing authorities? Now, where does this end? Or does it? I'm glad you asked. Because that really takes us to the second part of what I want to talk with you this morning about, and that is the duty of disobedience. The duty of disobedience. When I put this outline in the bulletin, the secretary showed up at my office door and knocked and said, Pastor, is that what you really wanted to say? Yes, that's exactly what I wanted to say. The duty of disobedience is provocative, and I intend it to be so. Listen to me now. You've got you to reason with me here. Because God is the source of all authority, He is the sovereign one. And all human authority, therefore, derives its authority from Him that whenever there is a situation in which human authority finds itself in conflict, with divine authority, then human authority must give way before the source of all authority, which is God Himself. And as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a divine duty to disobey governmental authorities when they set themselves in direct opposition to God. But listen carefully. We have an obligation to submit to them in everything right up to that point. And this is where it gets hard. This is where it gets hard. Because we should enter into the situations in which we say we will choose to obey God and not man very, very carefully and very, very reverently. Not in a cavalier fashion. Because to disobey a governmental authority is to set yourself in opposition to God if what they're asking you to do is not in direct contradiction to the Word of God itself. And it is very, very, very easy for us to baptize our opinions 
our desires, our own pride and our own selfishness, to baptize it and to say that this is the Word of God and therefore we must rebel because of this. Be very, very careful. Our attitude should be an attitude and a heart of submission and obedience. And it should only be as a last resort that we have to say, no, I cannot and will not do this. That should not be our fallback position immediately. Now, there are three areas. Three areas that I was able to discern from the Scriptures in which we have a duty to disobey. Here they are. Number one, evangelism. Number one, evangelism. After His resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ gathered His disciples together and He gave them a mandate to go into, the earth, into all the world and to preach the gospel to all the nations. That great commission is repeated over and over again in the early pages of the New Testament. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's pretty clear. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until what? The end of the age. That's how we know, by the way, that that commission transfers from beyond the early apostles and disciples all the way down to you and me. There would be no need to tell them that he's with them until the end of the age because they were certainly not going to live that long. It's incumbent upon you and I. We are to preach the gospel. We are to make disciples. This is the direct, unimpeachable word of God. This mandate necessarily places us on a collision course with the authorities of this world. The authorities of this world, for the most part, hate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This puts us on a collision course with them. Therefore, throughout the last 20 centuries, there have been very, very few relative periods of peace in the, in the history of the people of God. That is, that they have been antagonized and persecuted by their governments from one end of this globe to the other. The vast majority of the followers of Jesus Christ, because of their commitment to preach the gospel, have become a target of government persecution. We as a nation have enjoyed a relative period of peace, a bubble. It's unlikely this bubble will continue. We may well find ourselves in our lifetime being harassed by our own government because we are committed to God and not man in this particular issue. When the government says you cannot preach the gospel anymore, are we to submit to that? Are we to shut up? No. No, we're not. The Apostle Peter he said, we must obey God rather than men. Peter also said, by the way, submit yourself to every human institution. 1 Peter 
Preaching the gospel takes priority over governmental prohibitions. But understand something. We may well suffer by being obedient to God. We may well suffer for it. Those that have gone before us have. Book of Acts. Go ahead and turn back there. Acts chapter 5. Verse 40, page 1094. Just get this in your mind. This is the second time that Peter and the apostles have been prohibited by the authorities over them from preaching the gospel in the temple. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. Then on goes a discussion about what to do with these people. Do we kill them? If now, if we kill them, we might turn them into martyrs. We might find ourselves actually opposing God. Don't kill them. I know. Flog them. Just beat them up. And warn them again. And that ought to be enough to quell their rebellion. Verse 40, So they took this advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. But they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Catch the connection here. We must obey God rather than man. We will probably suffer for it. And when we do, we will rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of our, name of our Savior. Listen, the only way that anyone adopts that kind of an attitude is through the transformation of the Spirit of God in their heart and mind. That is an otherworldly attitude. We shouldn't read over this easily. They were flogged. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were flogged. Yeah, they had their backs laid open for the sake of Christ. By the way, notice that Peter was not arrested for the act of preaching. Peter was arrested for the content of his preaching. There are times and places where it is not appropriate to speak. We need to be spiritually sensitive and aware of those things. And if the government has permitted us to speak in certain contexts, then, then we need to submit to that. For example, standing up in the middle of a movie theater and starting yelling, you must repent to the Lord Jesus Christ. is inappropriate. It's wrong. The point of the matter is, is that for the government to restrict us from opening our mouths in the proclamation of the gospel places the government in direct contradiction with God and we must obey God, not men. But there are many, many, many ways to preach the gospel. We just need to think carefully, think reverently, think slowly before we claim divine prerogative for what we do. Second area. Worship. 
Second area is worship. The first commandment says very clearly, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The second says that you shall not worship or serve an idol. When it comes to worship, the Bible is exceedingly clear from beginning to end. Worship belongs to God alone, for He alone is worthy. And to worship anything or anyone else is to put yourself in violation of the Word of God. God requires exclusive devotion, exclusive worship. Therefore, when human government usurps the worship of God, they have placed themselves in opposition to God, and we are then have a duty to disobey. Many, many, many of our forefathers died because they would not offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And the reason they wouldn't say it is because Jesus is Lord, and there can only be one. For the sake of time here, you can just copy these down, check them out on your own. These are well-known passages. Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were called to fall down before the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had created. And they refused. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, If you refuse to fall down before this idol, you will be cast into the fiery furnace, and you will be incinerated. And they said to him, Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, we may or may not get incinerated. God may or may not deliver us, but we are not going to bow down. And into the furnace they went. Later, Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel was an old man, the king was tricked into passing a law that said that you could pray only to him alone. And Daniel refused, and he, he went to his room, and in, with an open window, he bowed and prayed as has been his custom towards the direction of Jerusalem. And his enemies had trapped him and the king. He was thrown to the lions. If the day ever comes, beloved, when, our, when, our, when this government outlaws our worship of God, when this government mandates that we worship them, that we take an oath of allegiance to them, such like the Caesar is Lord kind of allegiance, oath of allegiance, then we must refuse, even if it causes us to be cast to the lions. But we need to be very careful. Very, very careful that we know where that line is. Listen, if this government were to revoke our tax-exempt status because of our refusal to accept their anti-God agenda, then we must continue to pay our taxes. You understand that? Here's a thought, by the way. I just lay it out there for you to think about. In our increasingly secular society... Do we give back enough to it to justify our tax-exempt status? Should your atheistic neighbor support your Christian endeavors through tax exemption? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's an interesting thought. The government would be well within its God-given legal authority to revoke it. And we would be required to continue to submit and pay our taxes. You do know that, don't you? It's the way it is. It's the way it is. Third, 
morality. The third area where we have a duty to disobey is the issue of morality. Our country is morally bankrupt. We sang America the Beautiful, and, and it is a wonderful song, and it's filled with great and glorious aspirations, many of which are no longer true. We are the world's largest exporter of pornography. In the last 37 years, we have slaughtered more than 50 million of our own children. And the carnage continues. The statistics are mind-numbing. So what does a follower of Jesus Christ do? Do we have to submit to that kind of a government? A government that has enshrined these abominations as part of public policy? Are we still called on to submit to that government? Answer, yes. Yes, we are. How do we balance this? I think we can find great help way back in Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Page 57 if you're still using a pew Bible. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shiphrah, and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating little account tucked away there. God commends the midwives for the violation of the Pharaoh's direct command and authority to slaughter the innocents. Beloved, I believe that that gives us insight into the place where we must draw the line and say it is our duty to disobey our government at the point where our government mandates that we participate in the abominable slaughter of our young. It's at that point that we must say we will obey God and not man. And we must be willing to suffer for it. We must be willing to suffer for it. By the grace of God, bad as it is, we have not yet arrived there. It is not a government-enforced policy. I understand that it's highly encouraged. I understand that it's now being funded out of taxpayer dollars and all the rest of it. I understand those things. But we have not yet arrived at the place where it is mandated. But brothers and sisters in China have. 
And they'd be forced to take a stand. Forced to take a stand. Listen. In the same way as the believing Gentiles in Nazi Germany during World War II hid the Jews. And some of them suffered for it, up to and including their own imprisonment in the death camps. As the believing Gentiles during the time of the Great Tribulation, Matthew chapter 25, will shield Jews from the horror and persecution of the Antichrist, in that way, we too, if we find ourselves in this role, must stand up to our government to protect the innocent. And we must be willing to suffer and die for it. These are where the boundaries lie. I'm convinced. In the meantime, we do have certain privileges that have been delegated to us, do we not? We have the privilege of protest. We have the privilege of voting. We have the privilege of writing our congressmen and women. We have the privilege of attempting to make some influence into the political process, although personal opinion, I'm not sure it will make any difference. A lot of time and a lot of money has been devoted in the last 37 years and I don't see much of a difference. As God moves on your conscience in these things, before Him, act. We must refuse to obey any law that requires us to act immorally. But the key is that the law requires it of us. That's the point of disobedience. I have a quote for you there in the back of your bulletin. You can read along as I read it. I think it is exceedingly insightful and penetrating. by F.F. F. Bruce. He says, I quote, Christians will voice their no to Caesar's unauthorized demands the more effectively if they have shown themselves ready to say yes to all his authorized demands. Do you understand that? When we are characterized by a spirit of submission and obedience, first time, every time, and with a happy spirit, then when we say no, it will stand out. But if we are instead characterized as angry, harassing, vitriolic people who frequently confuse their personal political agendas with the divine agenda of God and wrap the Bible in the American flag, we become we run the risk of becoming just another political action committee, another screaming squeaky wheel in Washington to be thrown a few sops from the federal trough that we might close our mouths and move about our business. Beloved, these are dangerous times and dangerous places. It takes a lot of wisdom to negotiate our way through. It is my prayer for my own heart and for ours that a spirit of submission and obedience and desire to honor God by honoring the authorities He's placed over us would be what would characterize our lives. And then God forbid that time we have to stand up and say no.
people will sit up and take notice. Let's pray. Oh God, these are hard times and these are hard issues. We feel so deeply about many things. Oh Lord, we feel like our heritage, those things that we have grown accustomed to and familiar with are slipping through our very fingers. Oh Lord, we confess that we do not think clearly in these matters as frequently as we should. And, oh, Father, we are desperate for your grace. Please, oh, Lord, help us to sort it all out. For Jesus' sake, amen.